One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 29th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. An unholy row has broken out between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil over deciding next year's budget. That's the job of Michael McGrath, the Minister for Finance and Fianna Fáil TD. But Fine Gael is long out of the traps with three junior ministers saying tax cuts should put €1,000 back into the pockets of people earning up to €50,000 a year. Leo Bradker said over the weekend, looking after Middle Ireland is the reason Fine Gael is in government. Fianna Fáil's Barry Cowan responded, accusing the Taoiseach of pure electioneering. It's as simple as this. Uh, when you have an economy that's growing, uh, when you've more people at work, uh, when you've more people that are earning more, uh, when you've more businesses um, trading more and making more profits, there are more favourable choices that you can make. Look at the Labour Force survey uh, out today. 2.6 million people at work, 600,000 more at work today than when I first became a government minister uh, incomes uh, at an all-time high uh, and female participation in the workforce at, at its highest ever level. And when you're in that position, when you pursue the right economic policies, the right trade policies, the right foreign policy for a number of years, well, then you have choices. But given all of the challenges facing the country now, housing, immigration, overcrowded hospitals, the cost of living and unaffordable bills for so many people on low incomes, is it possible to cut taxes? Yes, in that context... Uh, when you have uh, a strong economy, it is possible to reduce taxes and also to increase social welfare and pensions and also to find more money to exist, in pu- to, to invest in public services and public infrastructure. Hasn't the government been cutting taxes, though, in recent years, while problems like the housing crisis have worsened in tandem? It's actually what we've done every year, probably for the past six or seven years. Perhaps that hasn't been noticed by you, but it is a fact. Uh, and you, and I, I'd invite you to fact-check that. For the last number of years, we've been able to reduce taxes on incomes, we've been able to increase pensions and social welfare, we've been able to increase public spending, both on services and on infrastructure, and we will continue to do that so long as this government remains in office. That's the Taoiseach speaking in the doll last week. Uh, let's speak uh, to Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. A very good morning to you, Sean. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme. The two big government parties, uh, it seems, at each other's throats over this Fine Gael proposal. Uh, the €1,000 going back into uh, the pockets of uh, people who are working, earning up to €52,000 a, a year, would be at a cost of €1.5 billion Euro to the Exchequer, not just next year, but every year after that. Uh, 
Uh, is that uh, prudent spending of public money, do you think? I don't have any great problem with reducing taxes, but I think they should be done in a way that basically reduces the tax burden on people who are in lower incomes. And uh, I'm not sure that they, in fact, I'm quite certain that that is not the case with the proposals that were made by the three ministers. But I think that's food for another day because they didn't provide an awful lot of detail. And there was just, you know, the costings that you gave there Mm. were dribbling out days later if you know what I mean. I think uh, bottom line and this kind of stuff, if you're making proposals, you need to be able to put the uh, the actual costs on the table. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think that's the thing. But this, uh, secondly, and more importantly, really, is uh, what should be your priority when you're starting to think about the budget, which is still five months away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. There's a summer economic that. statement uh, which will tell us uh, what uh, choices uh, there are, or at least what money is uh, available to make uh, what choices uh, politicians believe should be prioritised. Uh, but it's certainly true to say that those on minimum wage or, or those on low incomes won't get that thousand euro, will they? They won't get a, pen, a cent to it. They won't get a, sin, a single cent of it uh, unless they unless they the way that, the only way that you can get money to the people in that space is to increase tax credits or to make those but to, to and to make those tax credits refundable. In other words, to make sure that people benefit from the full value of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one hundred and thirteen thousand people uh, in a job at the moment who are still living in poverty. And the part of the reason for that is because they have low incomes uh, in their jobs. They're mm. on minimum wage or slightly above minimum wage or they're part-time jobs or whatever. Mm. Uh, the bottom line in it, again, is if you're going to distribute uh, resources and you have to make choices, where do you start? I would suggest that the place to start is recognizing that the society is measured by how it treats its most vulnerable, its most marginalized. Mm. And we'll and they, come back to that in a moment. I, I know you want a, a €25 euro increase in social welfare. We'll come back to that in a, a moment if we can. But if we stay with that €1,000 and what it means, because we're hearing from Fine Gael, the main government party, uh, that this would result in low earners having more money in their pockets and keep holding on to more of their hard-earned money. Uh, there may be some benefit for people on, let's say, 30000 but the people who are going to get the €1,000 are going to be earning between thirty. Thirty-five and fifty thousand euro. I think. I think that's perfectly accurate, actually. And I think people, uh, be, people on low incomes, the, the, the hundred thirteen thousand who are living in households that are living in poverty, um, they wouldn't benefit from this at all. Uh, as I said, the government has to change its approach to tax credits if this is to, to, to go to lower paid people. Why? Because they don't earn enough at the moment to benefit from the full value of the tax credit. Mm. The only way that you can target new money at them is to actually uh, make the tax credit refundable. Okay. And, if that, in and, and if that's that, a, a proposal that's been rejected for years on end. And, and uh, yeah. this government mm-hmm. has not has refused to look at it in any serious way. In the, in the same way that they have refused to look at quite a number of proposals in other areas as well. Mm. They seem to be they, they, it's for a government that is in so much trouble and in terms of housing and health and a variety of other issues they seem to do very little consultation with people who actually might know something about it. They do a huge amount of con- mm. about these issues. They do a huge amount of consultation with their own uh, supporters, if you like, mm. people who would who vote for them. Possibly. Well, that's the reason that the, that Fine Gael is in government. <laughs> I mean, it's those very supporters. Middle Ireland, as uh, Leo Bradger calls them, the 
people earning between 30 and 5 uh, and 50,000 euro. Fine Gael is determined to give 1.5 billion euro to people earning between 35 and 50,000 euro a year. You're saying uh, that money should be spent uh, on increasing core social welfare rates by 25 euro a, a week. How much would that cost? About one and a half billion. Oh, well, that's a coincidence, uh, no, isn't that it? Includes, that includes uh, pensions, now remember. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about including uh, increasing all state pensions by 25 euro a week as well. So when you put the two together, you're talking something in that in that region. Um, again, we're waiting for the ready reckoner to be produced by the department, and then we'll know exactly what the numbers are. That's why we won't be publishing our own detailed, cost, fully costed budget proposals until such time as the government produces these kinds of numbers because otherwise um, we we might be open we, like what we try to do is to show okay this is the expenditure we, we recommend but on top of that this is how you actually pay for it and we would be pointing out exactly how much uh, as we do every year but to do that you must know what the exact costs are government is the only people are the only people who are in that space to be able to give us those numbers so uh, as soon as we have them we'll produce our own uh, fully costed budget proposals and no doubt we'll have a chat about that, them at that, mm. at that point but, but, I, but we, one of the things you can count on with us is that you're going to be basically, we're going to be looking at uh, how do we support the, the, the people who are on the margin and, and that's our first uh, priority but we will also, I guarantee you, be making a substantial proposal on tax reductions but we will be focusing it again on making the tax system fairer rather than benefiting people who are better off than many others in the society. Not necessarily the best off society. Although, when you look at the budget of uh, 2023, this government uh, widened the gap between welfare recipients and people on 100 grand, which is basically the rich mm. poor gap. They widened it by 199 euro. That means, in effect, that the person on 100 grand was better off as a hundred, by 199 euro after the budget than the person on welfare. And the interesting thing in that context, as you have covered several times on this program, many times, the, the people on welfare and the people who are marginalised and, and on fixed incomes, they are the people hardest hit by the cost of living increases because they are the people who pay most of their money, or, or pay a far higher amount of money uh, of their, as a proportion of, of the, 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 their actual total income um, on essentials. Yeah. And we... But like the better off pay about ten percent of their money, of their income on essentials. The poorest pay about thirty percent. So uh, and people are earning more. People are uh, the weekly earnings have increased very dramatically. I was very taken aback last week uh, to hear that average weekly earnings in this country are now at fifty thousand a year. That's correct, and that's where that's where it's going. So so where does that leave people on welfare in comparison to people on fifty thousand? The average uh, basically it leaves them further behind, and it leaves them without enough money to buy the essentials. That okay, they need but you want to get them to twenty seven and a half percent of average weekly earnings. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I, want to, I want to take this whole. What we're trying to do is take this whole thing out of the politics because mm. this is nonsense. Uh, to be that there's these kinds of arguments going on, uh, and not alone that when the argument is going on. Uh, people on welfare are excluded from the debate. There's no arena of any substance in which there's the, the likes of us can participate really in, in, in helping to shape that decision. Instead of that, what happens is um, the, the better, the, 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 the 
people who are sitting at the table, uh, government ministers, but also some of the other powerful uh, ones in society, they are the ones who then divide up uh, the cake that's there. And what we find is when we come to the table looking for increases in welfare or whatever, it's all gone on, on other stuff. And what that means, in effect, is, OK, we're not on the table. We're actually on the menu. That our, what happens is the, our, uh, the money that should be there to, 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 to ensure that the standard of living of the poorest is improved, like the two-thirds of a million people who are living in poverty. Their need, their, uh, there's nothing, this government is allowing poverty to increase, and it increased in the last numbers out, and then it'll increase again when the next numbers come uh, next April from the Central Statistics Office. They will show that there's been a further increase. At the moment, it's 13.1% of the whole population. Mm. Not just that, the older people have had a dramatic rise in poverty among them, and that's going to continue to rise as well. Mm. I obviously haven't been watching uh, what people are earning closely enough, but last time that I remember having a handle on it uh, annual earnings were on average about 38,000 they're now at 50,000 uh, they're dramatic increases uh, but we haven't seen uh, increases in line with uh, those uh, for people on social welfare and you're hoping to get people to 27.5% uh, on top of the 25 euro that you're proposing the government should give to people uh, on welfare next year uh, how much more would be needed to bring people to 27.5% of average I think it's somewhere in the region of about 30 plus over, but we would be suggesting that that be done over a couple of years. Mm. But Uh, you'd be talking about 55 euro next year if you were to achieve it in one go. Yeah, but we wouldn't be going for it in one way. A lot, yeah. a lot will depend on how the cost of living goes in the next 12 months as well. Like two years ago, we couldn't have predicted the kind of rise. Even a year ago, mm. we couldn't. We weren't. Wouldn't really have been able to predict the sheer scale of the rise in the cost of living. Mm. And I know these are caused by international issues like the the war, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, mm. and the price of oil and all that sort of stuff. But the bottom line in it is that. Um, we have huge resources in Ireland. We've got to be very careful that mm. we don't waste them, but we've also got to be very careful that we don't use them in such a way that we create problems for ourselves down the line. Okay. Like repeat the Celtic Tiger mistake, mm. repeat the, the mistake we've made several times previously. But so if people on welfare are getting so little in uh, relative terms, uh, in, ter- in terms of what you need to survive in this country, perhaps it shouldn't be a surprise that a quarter of gas customers are in arrears or children are, are going to school today without a, a lunch and will have to go hungry for the day until they get home this evening before they eat again. And that's the story of so many now. There's a story on the front page of one of the yesterday's papers uh, where there's, what, 180,000 people have applied for special payments to help them to get basic food on their tables because they don't have enough income uh, coming in to buy basic food, uh, the core necessities of their actual, for their their families. Now, that is a disgrace in a society like ours. And basically... That's the, con- that's the consequence of decisions that government have taken. And those, go- those decisions uh, basically mm. have marginalised poor people. This and government a, a third is not serious and has not been serious about tax and has not taken any serious mm. initiatives to tackle poverty. For example, they, 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 they've been killed telling us in the last six months about all the stuff, all mm. the one-off payments they've given as well as the welfare increase. When, you, when we do our calculation about how far, the fact that they're being left behind. We include all those one-off uh, 
payments. But however, the problem is those one-off payments are once they're gone, they're gone. And when we look at the like 2023 compared mm. to 2022, the the value of the welfare payment and the all the money coming in to people on welfare, uh, the value of that is less in 2023 than it is in 2020 than it was mm. in 2022, and that's a disgrace. And I suppose uh, the opposite of that is true. If uh, you spend one and a half billion euro cutting taxes uh, for people, putting a thousand euro in the pockets of people earning between. 35 and 50,000 euro uh, you're going to have to come up with that one and a half billion every year. That story that you talked about on the front page of uh, the Sunday Independent uh, was of 150,000 people looking for help to pay for food electricity and heating. 100,000 of those people uh, did get a a special uh, assistance payment uh, but that means a third of those who were looking for help were denied they were refused that help. And just think also of the of so many people who wouldn't know even how to access that money, or how to how to apply for it. So 150,000 applied for it, 100,000 got it, 50,000 didn't. But there's a there's a huge number of additional people who don't have the capacity for one reason or another. They may not be able to. They may not be computer literate and may not be able to do the kinds of applications. They may not just be aware of these kinds of things. They're living in a very very hard difficult situation where they don't have enough food to put on the table. They have to choose all that this whole thing about choosing between food and fuel mm. uh, in the winter. They have very hard choices. The cost of housing has gone through the roof, and that when they rent, uh, they are struggling to pay their their their, their, their the rent. And not alone that, uh, the, the actual proportion of their of their income that goes on rent is one of the highest in Europe. So, like all of these things coming together, are not accidents. These are the result of the failures of government to take seriously the reality of poverty in Ireland, acknowledge that it exists, and put a plan in place to deal with it. The plans that they have in, in, uh, to deal with, with, with it are, are, are really stupid, basically. They're not up to the job at all, and they're in, in the same way that the, the, the housing plan isn't up to tackling the housing crisis either. Mm, and we'll be hearing more about that in a moment, uh, but uh, uh, as you said, you believe that core welfare rates should be increased next year by €25. Euro. Uh, the kite, I think that's being flown at the moment, is an increase of €10. Euro. Uh, what would you make of a €10 euro increase? Right, and if you think about it this way, like, that's what the minister said, Minister Humphreys. And she's saying basically she give €10 Euros an increase in pensions and welfare, core welfare rates. If that's what she does... That means that this government will, in fact, have reduced the value of the money in the pocket of those who are most pressed by 15 euro in real terms for 2024. And I think that that basically summarizes how they actually think that it's okay. It says a huge amount about their values Mm. and their priorities, that they think it's okay to leave the poorest 15 euro a week worse off in 2024 than they are in 2023 mm. at a time when there is money pouring into the coffers of the of the, the um, and and that thousand euro that we're talking about giving to people yeah. earning between 35 and 50,000 euro uh, is the equivalent of 20 euro a week Precisely. And you see, that that's again the same thing. We're, we're, we're trying to say, you see, in, in terms of uh, reducing poverty, you have to reduce the gap. And uh, 25, the actual real number, uh, the exact number is 23.30. Uh, 
37 or something like that and we're just putting on a little uh, 1 euro plus uh, to br- and bring it to 25 to make a small contribution towards trying to reduce poverty remember a third of the Irish population practically would be in poverty if it weren't for the welfare system now it, the welfare system brings it down to 13.1% the, que- the, the, the government says what a great welfare system we have mm-hmm. this is fantastic we, we say why is the system structured in such a way that it requires that level of welfare to bring down the poverty line in a country that is a long, long way from being a poor country? Okay, well, it's very early this year, but pre-budget discussions are well underway, it would seem, as a result of uh, that op-ed in uh, the Irish Independent uh, this day last week. Sean, thanks for joining us. As always, uh, Dr. Sean Healy is uh, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. It is pointless to act a surprise, but it is equally impossible not to feel ashamed at uh, the number of uh, people who are living in emergency accommodation in this country. That's 12,259 people who were homeless last month. That includes 3,594 children who don't have a place that they can call home. 1,733 families are homeless. 962 of those families are one-parent families. Neve Kelly is uh, the policy manager for the organisation one family and on the line with us. A very good morning to you, Neve, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. We were expecting dreadful figures uh, for April uh, for a number of reasons, uh, but there's been a significant increase in uh, the number of single-parent households uh, that have found themselves in emergency accommodation. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Michael. We're, we're very concerned about the I suppose the rate of increase in one-parent families. Um, overall, the figures rose um as I, I you know i'm sure your listeners are aware but they went up a bit by about two percent um for one parent families the rate was seven percent so it's significantly higher um, and we also know that since the start of the housing crisis one parent families have made up more than half of all the families in homelessness every single month and um, this is despite their them making up about a quarter of the families um, nationally, so you can see that there is a, a much higher burden on these families than than the rest of the population. Okay, I take it a percentage of one parent families are, are uh, not uh, homeowners. Uh, a much smaller percentage of one parent families compared to the rest of the population. Yeah, so across the board, in terms of housing um, and ha- I suppose housing insecurity, um, one parent families fare worse, um, usually because. They have one income. It's harder to save for a mortgage. Um, it's harder to access um, housing. I mean, we're told, you know, anecdotally by parents that when they go to see rental properties, they're being told outright, you know, you haven't hope of getting selected for the property because you're a one-parent family. Um, so, hmm. you know, it's not just the families themselves. I think across the board threat housing people are aware that it's much harder for, for one-parent families to access housing and homelessness. Yet, despite that, um, we are seeing no targeted measures coming from government to address this. Um, and despite this being an ongoing problem, it's it's we feel it's been accepted as something that's a fact and that, you know, there's nothing being done, done about it. Mm. 
uh, apart uh, from uh, there just being one parent, it's a single income household, uh, which makes it more difficult, uh, I suppose, for people to buy their own homes. Uh, I'm not sure what you thought uh, of uh, the Bankers Federation last week. Uh, I think uh, it uh, knocked a lot of us for six, but they were saying that uh, if you're going to buy a house in Dublin, now uh, you need to be earning around €100,000. I think the average earnings were over €90,000. Yeah, I mean, for for a lot of families on one income, that's just simply never going to be a possibility. It's not something that they can um, hope ever hope to achieve. We also see a lot of issues with um, the breakdown of families. So where a family maybe has a mortgage or has a household, the relationship breaks down and um, there are a number of different issues that arise then. So you may have um, perhaps a court-ordered um discharge of the mortgage by the other parent, by the non-resident parent, um, until the child is 18. So the house is, remains until the child is mm. 18, but both parents need somewhere to live and both parents need somewhere um, suitable for their children to stay. So there's a lot of issues that arise around um, separation and, and breakdown of relationships that are, are pushing people into homelessness also. For anyone who retains an interest in the property, um, the family home, they're not able to access any housing supports at all. Okay. So we're seeing a lot of parents who are left basically forced into sleeping on couches or, um, you know, hidden homelessness essentially because they all their interests are tied up in the family home until their child is old enough to, to leave the home or until the, the court order expires. Mm. So, I, I, I mean, take it the cost of renting, though, is also pushing people into homelessness. Uh, I mean, you're going to need between 1500 to 2000 uh, in order to rent, it would seem, in this day and age. Uh, and that's if you can find somewhere to rent. Yeah, I mean, obviously the cost has been a problem for a number of years and it's been getting worse. But really what we're seeing at the moment is the supply being the, the, the key issue. That It's actually not even possible to find anywhere, even for families that who could afford to pay the rent. There's just no properties available. And do you believe um, evictions are driving these numbers up now? Well, I think we, we likely saw a slight increase in the April figures. Um, the increase would have been related to the ending of the eviction ban, but our worry is that the eviction ban will probably take a couple of months to come on stream because eviction notices will be served and then there'll be a, a lag um, between the evictions and the notice being served. So we're anticipating that the numbers are going to rise. So this is something that needs urgent attention from government. Um, we were quite disappointed to see when Housing for All was published that there was no specific family home, homelessness or family housing strategy. Um, and we would like to see a, a strategy that addresses family homelessness specifically and underneath that then targets one-parent families and for additional support in recognition of the increased housing insecurity that they face. I mean, we know the impact on children. Everybody's impacted from homelessness, adults and children, but the impact on children, you know, can last a lifetime. And it's really important that the government addresses this and puts in targeted measures to help these families. Mm. 
I'm not sure that we do know. I'm not sure that I know anyway. I'm not sure that uh, anybody can understand what it's like unless you find yourself in that situation. Uh, and uh, impossible for me, at least, Neve, uh, to contemplate uh, what impact it would have on a child. Uh, it undermines anything that uh, could be called security, which is so important in a, a child's life. It seems to be a shameful situation and it must put incredible stress and anxiety on the people who are undergoing this trauma that they've been put through. Absolutely. I mean, we know for children who are living in homeless accommodation, you know, it's documented that they are experiencing things like developmental delays, physical development, their emotional and and social development. Um, It also really impacts the parent-child relationship because parents are extremely stressed. They want the best for their children. They're living in essentially a nightmare and their ability to parent um, and their ability to, to actually function as a parent can often be um, hampered. It also can um, impact the parent's mental health, which then has a knock-on impact on the child as well. But this is true also for families who aren't living in emergency accommodation but and aren't um, noted in the figures. But for families who are living with parent, with their extended family or friends in a box room, squeezed in, not sure that they'll ever be able to, to get a home themselves. And also then the families who are living with threat of eviction. We've been told by families that we work with that they really can't function in other areas of their lives when there's housing insecurity, when they're worried about losing their home. It, it stops their ability to... Um, do other things in her life to socialise, to to have a job, to to really get on and thrive, because they're so stressed and they're so worried about, constantly about whether or not they're going to end up end up in homelessness. So okay. it's it's it goes far beyond the figures that we're seeing. I mean, the figures are really horrific. They're so um, devastatingly high at this stage, but there's so many other families that are are impacted. So unfortunately. The problem is a lot bigger than the figures that we're seeing in homelessness. Okay, one family offers uh, support, obviously, to single parent households, uh, and uh, I'm sure that uh, you'll continue to do that, uh, given uh, the numbers of uh, people who are in emergency accommodation uh, at the moment and those numbers growing. Neve, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Neve Kelly, one family's policy manager. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming to us in the meantime. Uh, quite a few people in touch with us uh, today. Uh, Jim says, I'm just wondering one thing uh, uh, when it comes uh, to the homeless figures. Uh, are, are they Irish or non-Irish? Uh, they're Irish people, uh, Jim, uh, because uh, the immigrants coming to the country are treated in a different way uh, than uh, those uh, who are resident in this country. Betty Daly says, all of the ministers come under the same title when it comes to giving an increase. They're all May Fainers, giving themselves pay rises of thousands of euro at a time if they get a cost of living allowance so should everyone else thanks uh, Betty for your message as always uh, to the programme today uh, a WhatsApp message from John Conlon of Carntown and Ballymckenney he says it takes me two years to earn 50,000 euro 50,000 is now the average earnings in this country uh, he says there's absolutely plenty of people earning big money when they can work it out that 50,000 is just the average uh, because there's so many people earning below that. Uh, so <laughs> there has to be an awful lot of people earning above that to 
for it to become uh, the average as uh, the case may be uh, well that is uh, unfortunately the truth uh, and uh, undoubtedly there's few of them uh, who will object to getting a, a thousand euro extra in their pay packets over the course of next year if that turns out to be the case and Finnegal gets its way speaking of high earnings uh, mentioned this uh, while ago there uh, when we were talking about uh, the cost of housing uh, and people's incomes uh, with Sean Healy uh, that you now need to be earning around €100,000 a year if you're going to afford a house in Dublin. The Banking and Payments Federation uh, report reveals that the average income now of first-time buyer families is €90,000. €90,000. Shocking figure when you know what the average wage uh, is across uh, the states. Now, uh, I listened to Minister O'Donnell there talking about affordable housing. Uh, here's the report uh, from last year for all local authorities. Seven out of 31 local authorities uh, delivered affordable housing. Seven out of 31 last year. Seven out of 31 delivered cost rental. Seven out of 31. I mean, you're not serious here. No, there's no plans to build affordable housing in huge numbers of local authorities across the state. No plans whatsoever. Yet it's €90,000 you have to have now as a family uh, to be a first-time buyer. You just need to cop yourselves on. You need to get a grip of this. There has to be a plan for affordable housing and cost rental in the state so families can have hope to have a roof over their head who are working hard. Right, that's uh, Parik McLaughlin, uh, Sinn Féin TD, who raised uh, this issue in uh, the Dáil last week with Taoiseach Leo Radker. Yeah, I, I saw that figure too. Um, uh, average family uh, buying a house now um, has an income of about 90000 Um You asked if I know what the average income for somebody working in Ireland is now. It's 50000 for an individual. So average income for two people working full-time will be 100000 Um So, so the, the, those, those are the numbers. Um, we are now seeing over 400 first-time buyers now every week. Um, it's the highest level since the Celtic Tiger period. That's probably an underestimate because it counts uh, couples as one. Uh, so really encouraging that we're seeing uh, uh, very large numbers now of first-time buyers. Um, and I want to see that increase. And government is helping. Uh, we have, for example, an affordable housing program for local authorities. We also have First Home. And First Home can be particularly helpful uh, because you, it allows people to bridge the gap between the mortgage they can get and the house that they want to buy and also we have the help to buy grant uh, which helps people get their deposit. Okay, all right, that's uh, Taoiseach uh, Leo Radker uh, speaking there. Incredible. Uh, I think I can see from some of the messages people are, are very surprised to hear that average earnings now at 50000 a 100000 for a couple and that's why uh, they can afford to buy houses uh, if uh, you need to be earning 90000 as a household at a minimum in order to afford to buy a house in Dublin. Strange world we're living in uh, for some of us it would seem uh, maybe not so strange uh, for others. Uh, I meant to give you the numbers today if uh, you do want to make comment on the programme. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000 That's 041-983-2000 uh, You can text or WhatsApp 0861-800-658 Email michael at lmfm.ie uh, A text message uh, from Jane who says uh, Are the problems that we have in this country as a result of uh, the increased population uh, from migration uh, 
which obviously is a contentious subject uh, these days. Uh, there's been a lot of statements in the Dáil over the course of uh, the last week on finding accommodation in particular for people coming into this country. Uh, we're going to hear a contribution now from a Fine Gael TD. This is Alan Farrell. I must draw a line between ensuring that the peace is kept and allowing certain behaviours to go unchallenged. I have an example at Ascoun Corley. If Deputy Pringle, myself, Deputy Curran, Deputy McGrath and Deputy Collins were to take a seat on the M50, perhaps on the bridge in Strawberry Beds and block traffic because of some gripe that we have with the state, we would be arrested. I absolutely know we would be. Therefore, I have to ask the question, why are Gardaí permitting individuals to block a public road? And I've yet to hear a satisfactory answer over that, for that over the last few days. In recent weeks, we have seen a, high, a number of high-profile incidents not far from here on Sandwich Street and in Inch and County Clare, where people have set up blockades to accommodation to, for asylum seekers. We cannot allow uh, these kinds of incidents to occur, nor do I believe that the underlying roots of these situations can be ignored. Or, we, or, or that they will simply fade away. No one has the right to block streets, to block access to buildings, to block access to places of work, what, like what occurred in Santry over the last couple of weeks, or indeed any other individuals in these ways, regardless of the setting, whatever the perceived justification that's given. We are a country of laws, and we must adhere to them. The sinister actors involved in these incidents do not speak for the wider community, and while they might feel that they can take matters into their own hands, we must send them a message that they can't. There are many issues to be addressed within these communities, and they are settings in which, uh, in which concerns can be raised. In all of these events, we often don't hear the voice of the individual seeking shelter. Protests outside accommodation centres, attacks on tents, buildings, and other such incidents uh, can be seen and can be deeply traumatic for people seeking international protection, many of whom have fled political instability, violence, prejudice and extremism. These individuals have the right to safety and the right to build a life in which they can contribute to our society. OK, that's uh, Fine Gael TD, Alan Farrell speaking in the door last week. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Some comments now. Mick says we should be absolutely mortified uh, over the levels of uh, poverty in uh, this country, not to mention the disgustingly high homeless figures. We need immediate action from government to tackle the growing numbers. Uh, John was listening with interest to the interview with Father Sean Healy this morning. He says he applauds Sean for fighting for those less fortunate, but he, he wonders why he never once mentioned anything about people on social welfare needing to be more proactive uh, about getting work. There's a lot of employment available in the country at the minute, so why don't social welfare recipients apply for those roles? Thank you indeed to John. I suppose the reality of it is is that there's pretty much full employment. Uh, we don't have an unemployment problem as such to talk of. Now, when we're talking about social welfare rates, I think the biggest bill would be going to pensioners who are not expected to work, and therein lies uh, Sean's argument. I, I take it, but thank you indeed for your call 0419832000 the telephone number text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Ishaq, my colleague deputy carthy and i have repeatedly raised the long long delays by this government and the last to progress an inquiry into the death of shane o'farrell it's nearly 12 years since shane was killed by a man who should have been in prison 
and five years since the Dáil and Shannon adopted resolutions calling for an independent public inquiry into the actions of Angarda Siakana and other state agencies both before and after Shane's death. The scoping exercise that was carried out is one uh, mechanism devised by the previous government to delay acting on both chambers' call for an inquiry. It was established over four years ago, and yet the final report is still with the Minister for a year now. All those referred to within it have been consulted with in detail prior to the submission of the report. The Tónishtha, Michal Martin, previously stated that the events leading up to and after Shane's death demonstrated shocking malpractice and dysfunction within the criminal justice system. And it's the O'Farrell family who uncovered this malpractice, let it be known, Thank that you, has please. continued into recent times. These are matters of significant public interest and concern. Will the Taoiseach establish an inquiry as both the Dáil and Shannon have called for? That's the Sinn Féin President, Mary Lou MacDonald, raising the killing of Shane O'Farrell in Carrickmacross and indeed uh, how his killing has been investigated with the Taoiseach. Dr. MacDonald raised the very uh, sad case of of Shane O'Farrell, um, who was killed in, in a road traffic uh, collision uh, many years ago now, and want to extend my condolences again to his uh, mother and family. Uh, a, sc- a scoping report has been carried out. Uh, it's very detailed, very comprehensive, um, and Minister Harris has met with uh, the family about it. Um, and we would like to see it published as soon as possible. Um, would very much like that to be done. Um, and uh, when it is published, uh, I'd ask people to read it. Uh, and to reserve judgment on any further steps until they've had a chance to read it, and I don't think that's uh, an unreasonable ask uh, or request um, with respect to all of the people involved. All right, that's uh, Leo Vranker uh, responding to Mary Lou MacDonald, who uh, quite correctly mentioned how Matt Carthy has raised this as an issue of concern many times over a Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monaghan. Matt Carthy is on the line. Good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this is going on, uh, it seems, forever at this stage. Twelve years since the death and four years on from the government announcing a scoping inquiry that may lead to a public inquiry. Uh, but we're none the clearer, are we? Hello, Michael, and good morning to, to your listeners. Um, yes, and I think it's just important just to reiterate the, the facts around this. I know the Taoiseach was speaking off the hoof, but when he referred to uh, road traffic collision and being the cause of Shane O'Farrell's death, it doesn't go anywhere close to describing what actually happened. Shane was killed in a hit and run by somebody who should have been imprisoned. That person um, w- um, was a convicted criminal of the highest order. Um, and there are a number of questions in respect of how the Gardaí dealt with that individual. A short while before Shane was actually killed by this man, the car in which he was in was stopped by by Gardy, who knew um, the individuals who were in the car. Um, the person who was driving was actually in the passenger seat at that stage, and the Garda um, advised him to start driving the car, even though that car had no tax insurance or NCT. Um, that person was also in breach of several bail conditions and had been brought to um, numerous courts around this um, region. Um, and on each occasion, no reference was ever made to the fact that he was in breach of previous bail conditions. And one of his bail conditions was actually that he was to sign on um, at a Garda station on a daily basis. 
Um, in one instance, he was actually imprisoned in the north for a period of time while he should have been signing on, and nobody apparently um, realised that this was happening. So there are several questions mm. as to how this individual was able to act with um, apparent um, impunity in respect of several very serious criminal um, acts. And then, so there are serious questions that, um, arising in that respect mm. that I believe only a public inquiry um, would be able to get to the answers of. And then there are subsequent questions in terms of the actions subsequent to Shane's death in respect of how this case was dealt with by both by the Gardaí, by the DPP, by the court service, mm. and it crosses several statutory agencies and, and bodies. And all of these things that I'm after mentioning were found out not by any of the processes that were officially put in place and that have resulted in several years of a delay in this public inquiry, but by Shane O'Farrell's family and particularly his mother, Lucia. All of this information, the fact that um, this um, person who killed Shane was um, in breach of so many bail conditions, should have been imprisoned, and the apparent failures in terms of the subsequent actions by the state. They were all found out by, uh, by Lucia and her family. And yet, what we've had on the part of the state has been a protracted, and I would allege, um, purposeful um, um, set of mechanisms to actually delay the full truth in this case um, emerging, because we had a GSOC inquiry that took several years, and throughout that process. We had ministers for justice and senior government officials being able to say we can't deal with this matter until uh, un- until this um, investigation is over. When the GSOC report was finally published, there was as many questions that mm. were left as answers in terms of that report. And the doll at that point, as Mary Lou MacDonald re- referenced, actually passed a resolution, as did the Shannon, calling for a full public inquiry. And, and the government of, of the day said that the scoping exercise, I think... The pe- scoping exercise, yeah. which a scoping exercise, mm. by the way, Michael, is supposed to take a number of months. Mm. It's, I was it, just going to say, that was the expectation, wasn't it? So and here, that we it are, here we are, five inquiry. years after mm. that resolution, mm. and now we're approaching the 12th anniversary of Shane O'Farrell's... Uh, Shane O'Farrell's Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And let's remember the man who killed Shane O'Farrell. Um, this man, Zygmantus Gradzuski. Um, a notorious criminal who broke bail conditions on a number of occasions and as a result should have been in prison and not at liberty to be driving that car that knocked Shane down on his bicycle and killed him. Uh, He never served any time in prison. He, He was given an option to be extradited. Yes, so it was a bizarre confluence of events because, um, as you say, when he, he was convicted of essentially road traffic um, crimes as opposed uh, for the killing and the deliberate hit and run, uh, or in terms of um, vacating the scene of the hit and, hit and run, um, but it was actually road traffic, um, the Road Traffic Act in which he was convicted, and uh, the judge actually gave him an option of either um, serving a 
relatively short custodial sentence or returning home um, and he obviously chose the latter but then prior to that order being enacted um, he was finally convicted of another uh, another crime and in that instance he was he was actually imprisoned so it was impossible for him actually to adhere to the previous court court order but all of this it's it's, it's very murky and it's very cloudy and um, I don't know what would have happened if we did not have a family like the O'Farrells at the centre of this, who are persistent, who are determined, and who spend every minute of their every waking day, particularly um, Shane's mother and father, Jim and Lucia, um, trying to get justice for their son, Shane. And I think it's an absolute scandal that we would now hear government representatives say it's not a, an unreasonable request to wait even longer. I think at this stage it is utterly unreasonable for government to delay this matter a second longer. They need to establish an independent inquiry, bearing in mind, and I put this to a number of ministers um, for, for justice, if government decide in the morning to establish an independent inquiry, it will take several months at least in order to establish that inquiry, set out the terms of reference, put in place somebody to operate it and, uh, and, and agree on, on the mechanisms of that. And then obviously the inquiry itself will take some time and I had How long? Uh, if the scoping inquiry uh, what, what you said five years is it? Um, if, well it was five years since the resolution of the okay, but, and a but, number of months sure, afterwards okay. so between but four and five if years. If the scoping inquiry takes four or five years how long is an inquiry going to take? Well I would contend that it shouldn't take that long. The facts on, on the, the broad facts are well known. What needs to happen is who is responsible for the failures that led to each of those um, facts. I'm not convinced that the scope and inquiry will deal with that level of detail. Certainly the GSOC inquiry didn't. The GSOC inquiry essentially um, recommended mm. some administrative um, penalties to be placed on Gardaí. Gardaí's did the Garda involved subsequently appeal that and the Garda commissioner decided not to proceed or lifted the sanctions that were, were put in place. So at this stage, nobody has really paid any uh, any sort of pay penalty or sanction for what, in my view, were gross failures mm. on the part of statutory bodies um, in respect of this. Now, of course... It's how the investigation was handled that can be dealt with uh, in terms of accountability because this man uh, who was extradited to this uh, Zygamantis Gradzuska, I remember speaking to Lucia O'Farrell a, a number of years ago and she was telling me nobody knows where he is. Yeah. Uh, he, he was extradited and that's the last we'll ever hear of him, I think. Well, I certainly hope so, but we don't know. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, he is ultimately responsible for Shane's killing. But he shouldn't have been at liberty in order to be responsible for that killing. He should have been imprisoned. He, as I say, um, a short while before he killed Shane, he should have been arrested on several occasions mm. before that. He, if, and in my view, if judges were made aware um, on particular occasions that this individual had been responsible for several be- breaches of bail conditions, then he wouldn't have got bail again, which is what kept happening. Every time he was brought before before the courts in respect of a crime, he was um, released on bail. Mm. And in some instances... And it's probable, isn't it, that difficult. he was off his mind on heroin when he killed Shane? I, I don't know that for, uh, for but a probable. fact, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it's, it's probable. I, I mean, yeah. you know, and, and uh, a lot of questions about why this man was let go. Obviously, yes, and I think that's that, that goes to the heart of this issue, why it was that it appeared 
that there was a reluctance on the part of the state, to use that broadest possible term, to actually um, vigorously pursue a full conviction and imprisonment of this individual. Okay. Um, I, I take it uh, we don't know when uh, the scoping inquiry will report or how long more this well, might go the, on. The scoping inquiry has concluded. Um, the minister has the report, we're told, for the, the best part of a year. In my view, any scoping report is simply going to point to the obvious, that this needs to be fully investigated. And the best way for that to happen is by means of a public inquiry. You can understand why the O'Farrell family have lost confidence in institutions of the state carrying out private um, I- I private I- I- inquiries or investigations into this matter. They mm. want this out in the public. But there was... There was and, There there was no indication from the Taoiseach when that might be. He wasn't able to say when it will be published. No, and as I say, the position of government, I can only um, allege, is actually one to frustrate and delay what is inevitable. Because obviously the people who want answers more than anybody are Shane's family. But the consequences of what happened and the importance of what happened go to every one of us. And ultimately what we want in these instances is an absolute assurance that such um, an injustice will never happen in another family. And the only way we can do that is if we can outline the facts of the case and identify what are very clear failings and put in place mechanisms to ensure that those failings never happen again. And that can only happen as a result of a public inquiry. And that is why this goes way beyond the O'Farrell family, even though they're the people who are most um, um, most personally affected by this. This affects us all. This is a societal issue, and this is one that we have to get get right. And my, I, I will be appealing and using every opportunity I have to appeal to government to stop the delaying um, um, process. They have put the O'Farrell family through enough in that regard. What we need now is a public inquiry. Let the people understand precisely what happened and let us then as politicians put in place whatever legislative changes are required to ensure that it never happens again. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monaghan, Matt Carthy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you were listening to us on Friday, uh, you'll have heard how 40% of rural homes uh, were denied planning permission in 2022. Peter Fitzpatrick raised uh, this as an issue with the Tonished Mihal Martin and said that that figure had come from Louth County Council. There was a, a bit of a, a dispute, but certainly going by the calls uh, that we got to the programme after hearing that debate, uh, a lot of people are very concerned concerned about how difficult it is to get planning permission particularly uh, if uh, you're looking for local needs permission to build near your parents and so on. Peter Fitzpatrick is on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed. As I say I think you touched a nerve with our listeners uh, which is probably no surprise if so many applications are being rejected. Michael, if you look back in 2022, uh, there was 177 applicants from people living in rural county Louth looking for permission to build the homes, put a roof over their heads. And if you look, for example, in North Louth, uh, 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 45 people were granted permission, 22 were refused. Mid Louth, there was 44 granted, totally refused. And in South Louth, there was 18 granted and 18 refused. That's a total of 177 and 70 refused. Even go back as far as 2021, in North Loud, there was 109 granted, 89 refused. Mid Loud, 110 granted, 72 refused. Mm. And in South Loud, 54 granted and 42. 
it's coming to the stage. It's, it's getting very, very serious. The amount of people from Zorda, Aldi, Dunleal, Curly, Omid coming into my consistency office and saying that they're family land. And one thing we have in Ireland, we've kept your land and they've been fused. And, and as far as every concern is that we've been fused because of city things. It could be a hedgerow, it could be local needs. It's, it's a lot of simple things. Mm. Like, it, it, uh, and I spoke to the tarnish on uh, Michal Martin, and Michal Martin told me that there's no cap or no band in grant admission. Mm. But if you look if you look back at the statistics in County Live at the moment, is if you look at the development plan, uh, from, which is from 2021 to 2027, it's, it's only allowing the rural areas to grow by 9.4%. And when you look at statistics, like the, the, the rural areas are going by 20%. So it, it makes no sense. So as far yeah. as I'm concerned, there is a cap in the band in County Loud. Right. But the Tarnisha uh, made the point that nearly 800 houses were built in that year, 2022, and 143 single houses were built, uh, which he says is about 18% and in line with the national ratio. Michael, listen... Uh, uh, for example, I did this lady, and I said to the Thomas, I this lady came into my, my consistency office a few weeks ago, and I've been on the council numerous times. She's a married lady with, with two, two children, and at present she's living with, in her family, and the house is overcrowded. There's loads of land in the area. So she applied, she went in for pre-planning, and she went looking for plan admission. And the council told her, the fact that there's a family home of Eddiedale, that they would give her permission to build a 50 square metres, an extension. Now, Michael, a 50 square metres, honestly, you wouldn't get a, a two children and a family now. And all the land they have, it, 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 it's been unrealistic. Mm. There's, a, there's a serious crisis. Now, with this family, they have to do now. They're going to have to move. These family come from Knockbridge. They're going to have to move from Knockbridge into County Loud. They're going to try to go into agencies and try to rent a property, which is nearly impossible. They're going to be paying maybe 1,500 euros a month. It makes no sense whatsoever. Now, they were willing to add, even ask the council just to have their own identity, but even the council allowed them maybe 15 yards or 20 yards from the main house. They just wanted to build an average three-bedroom house to have a family, to have an environment, to have a front garden, to have a back garden. To me, they're not looking for Edna Edna Audrey. Mm. They just want to be treated like normal people. But why were they refused? Can I ask you that? Because I think you also told uh, the doll last week uh, that you weren't happy with the explanations being given to people. What happens there, Michael, at the moment is uh, uh, when you go and, and you give an answer, like, you know, like they come to my consistency office and the letter they get is very, very vague. It basically, basically tells them, listen, uh, uh, the reason they're not getting it because uh, a hedgerow or because uh, there's enough space in your family home. Why don't, why don't yourself, your child and your, and your husband, why don't you move? They, they want people to move into the family homes. And so, because but the problem is at the moment is there really is a family in there. And if you look at the statistics at the moment, is most people are staying at home now until they're 28. Years ago, people used to leave their homes until they're 23 and 24 years of age. People just cannot afford to move. Like the prices of house, like the dearest part of building the house is probably the bit of land. Mm. And, uh, and what's, what's happening, family are willing to try to help their, their son or daughter, whatever it is, to build a bit of land. Isn't it nice for someone to hand you a bit of land? And it, it, if you look at it, the area, mm. like, if, if you, you build like, an extra 70 houses to build in country died last year, you wouldn't even say it. It's the tip of an iceberg. And, and what, what, what really is happening, they're coming in and they're getting, they're getting really angry at me and saying, how, how come we can't get planned admission? And mm. they'll, they'll, they'll come in industrial sites and they'll warehouses and they'll, they'll all of a sudden they're for maybe 50 or 60 or 70 families in yeah. the moment. It, it, it's wrong. Uh, and they're, they're spending a lot of money as well, of course, uh, putting their applications together. Waste of money, waste of time by the sounds of what you're saying. 
it, to me, it's complete no-brainer whatsoever. Why are we stopping? Uh, all this government wants to do is the, 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 to cut rural Ireland off, move, move into, into like, if you live in Jamiskin or you live in Dunley or not there, you are not entitled to build outside the area, even though we all consider like Dunley and Tatadani and all of them to be kind of rural areas. But they're not rural areas. They're, they're urban areas. It means that if you want to you know, this, this, if you want to buy a house or build a house, you mm. can't. Yeah, you have to stay within the area. To me, that is totally and ugly and unfair to people. Like. Okay, while you're with us, if, if I can, uh, Peter, I, I'd like to bring a, an issue to your attention uh, because you're a TD for County Loud. Uh, a couple of uh, people are in touch with us uh, with some very serious concerns about a delay in an ambulance attending an elderly couple in Marion Park yesterday evening. Um, just as I said, bring this to your attention. Marie has been in touch. She says last night an elderly couple in Marion Park uh, ha- had uh, a fall. The man had a cut in his head. The guardie were there. His wife was lying on the ground for two hours before an ambulance came. Uh, people from Marion Park came out to help, but it was very sad. A disgrace. The young guard was a great help. He, he had to get a, a guard car to go down to get an ambulance to come up to Marion Park. It's a disgrace. So it's sad to see this. Uh, that's Marie uh, who's texted. We also got a, a text from James Indrahadu who says yesterday evening an elderly couple in their 80s had a fall in Marion Park in Drogheda and the woman fell out onto the road, damaged what appeared to be her hip and her back. She lay in the road for over one and a half hours waiting. Her husband bumped his head and he was sitting on a chair looking out for his wife on the road. Uh, Is this what our country has come to uh, and who are we worrying about today? Uh, It's a very upsetting uh, incident, obviously, for everybody involved. I'm not sure if you want to comment on that, but as I say, uh, as a, a TD for the area, I thought I'd bring that to your attention today. Well, first of all, Michael, I want to hope that the people make a speedy recovery. Uh, uh, I've been criticising Stephen Donnelly for the last couple of months. Uh, like, if you look at the, the waiting list, like people are saying is uh, when you actually actually get into the system, in, in the health system, it's very, very good. What really frustrates me is that if you, if you even to Dundalk, Audi, if you look around the area, you always seem to see ambulance always seems to be parked. And you sometimes say to yourself, is, why is it taking so long for these ambulances uh, to come? As you know, Michael, there's a national ambulance service. When you ring up uh, the ambulance, like, I, I can't understand it. An ambulance may have to come from Newry, you might have to come from Zorda, it might have to. Like, the system we have, the amount of money that we're spending in our health system at the moment is, uh, to me, it's, it's not value for money. Mm. I remember years ago, the Minister Riley used to say, the money should follow the patient. But when you see record money being spent, yeah. like if you go, and I know they have to, I know they have to prioritise. But a, an elderly couple, a couple in their eighties, being left lying on the road for what appears to be between an hour and a half to two hours, based on what our listeners are saying to us, uh, would seem to be way below what people should have as a reasonable expectation. Michael, it's definitely, it's definitely not uh, acceptable. Uh, I will raise this in the door this week. Please call if you get an opportunity to raise it with the Minister. Like, you know, waiting, time, waiting for an ambulance to come, especially with an elderly person there. On. And the, the biggest problem we have is, like, I'm sure, like, in fairness to that, that guard, uh, we, we would commend the guard. But at the end of the day, the guard is not, is not a medic. He's not a professional person at the moment. Is, and his biggest fear was that if he maybe tried to move that woman up, and I guarantee you, there was thoughts in that guard's head they put that lady into the in, into into a gallery car and take him up to the hospital that there. But the biggest fear he has there is and that, that maybe he might do more damage than good there at the moment is. 
I'm just going to say it, it's wrong. It's not acceptable. Like it, uh, like the elderly people seems to be seems to be ones that be, be left behind. Mm. But as I said to you, Michael, is the yeah, but you, you, you couldn't. You, I'm sure you're right because they're only a stone's throw from the hospital. It, it is incredible that you're less than a five minute drive from the hospital. And you have to wait whatever it is an hour and a half or two hours on an ambulance. Michael, I've been on program. I'm a TD now for the last 13 years in County Down. And uh, you know, I'm a big advocate of mm. you know, your, your health, your welfare. And what really, really irritates me is when you look at the likes of the Lloyd County Hospital, there, like just, you say, maybe uh, from Marion Park, maybe three or four miles there, mm. a, a very short journey, maybe a five or ten minutes there. And like, you know, there's, there's no ambulance sitting there. There should be, there isn't, well, there's a will, there's a way. I just think this government's going to have to sit down realistically and have a really serious have a look at our, at our system. No, no, no matter how many times you raise issues in the dawn, there always seems to be all, it, this is A, B and C. But when you come to people's life, especially elderly people and children and everything else, and we're coming into the summer season, there's going to be an awful lot more actions, and people are going to be in the gardens, mm. a bit more activity and so on out there. And it, to me, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Okay. So all I hope is that, 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 that the people, the power to be, will, will, will get a bit of, a bit of cop on mm-hmm. and start you know, investing in, in, in the proper things we need to look after okay. our elderly people. Uh, I've run over time at this stage. Thank you for uh, commenting on that. Uh, I was a bit taken aback reading the messages coming in and uh, and uh, thought uh, it was only appropriate to mention it on the programme and uh, as a local TD uh, to ask for your thoughts. And thanks for that. And thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, for that matter, Peter. Thanks too to James and Marie who raised that issue with us. Uh, and as I, I say, thank you to Peter Fitzpatrick, independent TD for Louth. Michael Reed on LMFM. Can you imagine taunting somebody about uh, getting treatment uh, for cancer? Can you imagine mocking a nine-year-old boy who's undergoing treatment uh, for leukaemia? Can you possibly contemplate what action should be taken against the gutter snipes from Cork. Cork City fans uh, who were chanting what were described as file songs as uh, the Shamrocks manager Stephen Bradley about his nine-year-old son who is going under uh, undergoing uh, chemotherapy uh, as a result of his uh, leukaemia. It really is an incredible situation. They're talking about lifetime bans and so on, but uh, is there anything realistically good enough for these people? Let's speak uh, to Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles, who's a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Sports. A very good morning to you, Senator Castles. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You were disgusted yourself uh, at uh, the attitude and behaviour of these people. Hard to put it into words, isn't it, Michael? I know yeah. you've you've yeah. tried there, and it's a it's a new low in terms of abuse. And I think many people actually beyond sport listening to the show would be actually aware of Stephen Bradley and his family's journey because obviously he's a high profile manager. He manages Shamrock Rovers. Um, but last year, around this time last year, his young son Josh uh, was diagnosed with acute lympholeukemia. And I think at the time Stephen spoke about just walking away. Uh, from football, but his wife encouraged him to stay on and they went on to win the league title and there's a very famous picture was in all of the papers over the weekend of him lifting his little son Josh in Tallaght Stadium um, in November when they won the league title and I think you know he dedicated uh, the win uh, to his players that they got they got him over the line and I think a lot of people were just so so happy for him and his family and they've done serious work over the last year in terms of fundraising for uh, the Children's Health Foundation in Crumlin. Uh, and then you, you fast forward to, to last weekend. And 
I actually was uh, watching the, the, the Bowes Shelburne match, which was on the television, and news was coming through from what was happening down in court because they had three men sent off. It was obviously a high octane game, but it was only until the next day and the, the reports on the news and on social media uh, that some fans had chanted in uh, about his young son having leukemia while he was on air doing a TV interview. So this was 40 minutes after the match ended and there's a pub called The Corner Flag which, if people know Turner's Cross, actually uh, there's a viewing area which overhangs part of the ground and some fans, I wouldn't even call them fans, as you call them, gutter snipes, scum, mm. who were having, uh, you know, obviously booze or whatever, started chanting in while he was live on air uh, doing an interview. Um I, I don't know how the man kept composed, you know. The corner flag, the pub you're talking about, uh, say that they've uh, identified some of the people involved in this. Cork City, the club is very, very uh, apologetic, undoubtedly terribly embarrassed and uh, is talking about lifetime bans. Uh, I, I'm sure that's completely appropriate. Uh, should any other action follow? Yeah, I think it is. And I have to say, you, you know, I think the football community has commended Cork City for the manner in which they've acted so swiftly in the condemnation of these people because they're a family club. They don't want these people associated with their club. And from what I understand, two of the guilty party have come forward and admitted their guilt to the club owner, um, Dermot Usher, and they have been handed lifetime bans already. Uh, and they, I think the, the, the owners of the pub uh, facilitated in the identification of those uh, people as well. Uh, and the Cork City fan base over the weekend started fundraising asked even badly for charities that he'd like them to fundraise for, so they're doing it for Bumbleance, which is the interactive ambulance, and for Oscar's Kid Charity that looks after very seriously ill kids. So I think the condemnation from the football family has been swift, and they've been coming out and saying, we want nothing to do with these mm-hmm. people. Um, and like, and, and just, just in the week gone by, I actually met as part of my work with the new FEI CEO, Jonathan Hill, and the director of the League of Ireland, Mark Scanlon, who's actually from Trim, uh, and, you know, they're doing savage work and trying to put a, a new look and a new face and, and bring families to League of Ireland football. They're improving facilities. They want families to come. They don't want publicity like this because these people don't represent uh, football. No, not not, not, as, not as we know it in this country. And I think uh, we can be very proud of how fans behave in this country relative uh, to other countries. I, I think uh, what we saw from uh, these... Cork supporters um, was beyond what you'd expect from English football hooligans. Uh, uh, would you be concerned that there's a sinister element uh, that might creep in um, because we're seeing a, a lot of sinister things happening uh, across the country at the moment but are we heading down um, a, a, a rocky road here in terms of uh, football fans? I genuinely hope not, and I don't think so either. I think there's an inherent decency in the majority of Irish people. English football does have a problem. They have a they have a deep rooted problem that they're 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 nearly battling to get rid of in terms of actually uh, racist abuse, in terms of uh, religious abuse. It's 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 a big problem in the English league. I, I don't want to see that. I think we're an inherently good people. I don't think that's going to creep in uh, to this game. And that's why swift action was really required um, very quickly and, and it came forthcoming um, but there is also I suppose a wider debate Michael in terms of you know what's acceptable behaviour at sporting events full stop um, in terms of 
you know, you know, no one wants to go and, and think you're sitting in a in a quiet church at a football match. That's that's not what mm. people want. And I, I was on radio with you last year mm. where something was introduced in England where they had uh, silent touchlines at underage matches, you know. Uh, I think that's the other extreme. I don't think you want to take that passion out of sport. Uh, but there is a fine line. Uh, you know, I was at a game at the weekend. Actually, there, there was the Loud match in Navin. Uh, Loud were playing Cork. Uh, and the cork full forward was 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 taking a free down on one particular end, and a guy up behind me with a very thick hearty accent started shouting at him. He goes, "You know, you're wearing girly boots," and he kept mm. saying this over and over. He goes, "I'm in your head now. I'm in your head." Now the cork full forward put it over the bar, turned around, gave you man a smile, and ran off. You might think that's only banter, but in rugby that would be socially unacceptable. They have screens up saying, "Please respect the kicker," and there is silence when 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 rugby uh, plays kickers are taking their kicks. Uh, so it, there's an interesting debate among all of the sports in terms of what's socially acceptable within grounds, regardless of rules or laws mm. or anything to do with that. We all clearly know that what happened at the weekend was not only um, socially unacceptable, it was legally unacceptable. And I understand that Stephen has made a report to the Gardaí as well. Yeah, disgusting as he described it himself. There is no doubt about it. Uh, while you're with us, can I ask you about hurling? <laughs> because maybe you can answer Sean. Sean is in Dublin 9. Uh, and he's WhatsApping the, 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 the programme this morning. He says, Clare have played and beaten Limerick. Why do they have to play them again? He says, why is it no longer a knockout series? Uh, or why is it being allowed to become a money-making scheme for the Grab All Association? Yeah, well, I think anyone uh, who's, who's watched this year's hurling chapter so far, I mean, it, it has been amazing. You saw the area shots in RT yesterday of the Gaelic grounds in Limerick, and my God, it looked amazing. 40,000 packed in there for, for that particular game. When I was growing up, the biggest debate in the GEA for Sean uh, listening in would have been that you played one match and that was it, your summer was over. Nonsensical. That players were training all through the depths of winter for five or six months to have one game in the summer. Now they're guaranteed at least four matches uh, and it helps player progression. It brings people to have events like yesterday in the sun where you bring your family and enjoy your native your native game. It's an amazing thing. It's, it's uh, and, and it's also obviously replication in the Leinster Hurling Championship as well. And in the football championship as well, for us poor mead people who are now down in the Talton Cup, Michael, uh, you know, our summer could have ended uh, weeks ago, and that's it. You wouldn't have seen Mead play again till the, till the end of the summer. Uh, and instead, um, you know, we'll possibly mm. have six more games. The same for Loud as well, having got to the Leinster final, had a bad day. But my God, they were so good on Saturday against Cork, and, and they really should have won. And that's the benefit of these new systems, that you actually have people the teams for themselves who put so much effort in that they get to go and play actual games which is what they want to do and for the fans to see so many loud people come into Navin on Saturday was actually fantastic young <clears throat> young, mm-hmm. young families coming in and supporting the team it was great Very good, very good Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles Thanks, uh, Some comments uh, on that uh, Liam Whatsapping us saying Michael it's absolutely disgusting behaviour from so-called fans uh, this is the Cork supporters and uh, that dreadful behaviour. A question about all of this behaviour, Liam says, is why does soccer attract this type of uh, behaviour? I wish Stephen's young son all the best and I sincerely hope he makes a full recovery. Thank you indeed uh, for that, Liam. Uh, Some text messages, uh, one from somebody who says, Shamrock Rovers' so-called fans did the exact same thing a few years back. Uh, And 
as to that accident that we heard about in Marion Park, a couple of people in touch with us about that. Uh, one texter said, oh my God, that poor woman lying on the road for an hour and a half for two year, two, two hours. What if she had a, a stroke? Uh, a, a time is of the essence. Somebody else says, why didn't a neighbour or family member bring the elderly couple to the hospital? Thanks, Alice, uh, for that. Uh, well, uh, I think maybe as uh, Peter Fitzpatrick suggested, you, you might be... Uh, Concerned that you might do more harm than good. Eamon is in Dunleer and he says, Michael Shamrock Rovers fans did the exact thing as Cork fans chanting abuse at Simon Webb, a Drogheda player whose wife was dying of cancer. It was pure disgusting, but nothing was done about it. Uh, and uh, that lady has passed away since. Thank you, Eamon, as well. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. 086 one eight hundred six five eight. If you want to text or WhatsApp us today, Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, I did mention it earlier on in uh, the program, but it is incredible to think uh, that concern has uh, been working in twenty five countries worldwide over the course of twenty twenty two. If you take into account that there's less than two hundred countries in the world, in effect, it means uh, that one in eight countries in the world has very significant problems, great levels of poverty uh, and indeed many other things uh, that are causing people problems and could uh, be a threat uh, to their existence as uh, the case may be. It's a big bad world uh, when you look on it like that and given uh, how many countries are facing Uh, so many problems. It's not surprising uh, that Concern is saying that uh, last year was a tremendously challenging year. We can speak to David Regan, who is Concern's World Chief Executive. A very good morning to you, David, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, Good morning, Mike. In those 25 countries, you've uh, helped 36 million people. It really is an incredible statistic in itself. It is. It's, it's, it's a remarkable statistic. It's, it's, our, it's our greatest uh, impact year ever. And it's, I mean, we have to give thanks to our supporters, um, the public in Ireland and the Irish government. Uh, it really makes a difference. Um, 36 million people is an astonishing number, as, as you say, working across various different kinds of programmes. I suppose the most significant is the emergency responses. So last year, you know, you had the, the outbreak of hostilities in Ukraine and all the displacement there and people responding to that and the great response from the Irish public. Uh, 65,000 people in Ukraine have been directly helped by, by, by concern as a result of, of that support. Mm. You had shocking floods in Pakistan and concern helped 3.2 million people there to survive those floods. A huge number uh, of people uh, for really, 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 really serious flooding, which is occurring, I suppose, as a result of, of climate change. And then you also had the kind of ongoing um, chronic emergencies, as they're called, which is uh, where essentially the climate has changed or conflict has greatly affected the state. The likes of Somalia and Kenya and Ethiopia, um, you know, very, very difficult circumstances there. Even even this year, you've, uh, you've 20 million people in in significant need of help with regard to food in those in those areas, and it was similar yeah. last year. Yeah, and they'll be hoping so, for rain. They'll be hoping for rain this year for the first time in four years. Is it correct? Yeah, yeah. there, there, there mm. was five dry uh, rainy seasons. So so I was in I was in Kenya and Somalia in December and speaking to the. To, to the farmers there, and uh, they were describing, you know, seventy percent of their livestock had yeah. died, um, and they had no um, 
really uh, no, no means of sustenance. Uh, the the, the so, opposite so. of Pakistan, really, isn't it? Uh, how the yeah. environment is uh, causing uh, problems, uh, whether it's famine or disease uh, and poverty and everything that goes with it, uh, flooding on one hand and no rain on the other hand. Yeah, it, it, it is. It, it's kind of a, it's a sequence of events which, which is gradually increasing its, in its intensity. So we've seen, you know, the impact of climate and longer, more profound droughts or floods happening over time, but now they're increasing in frequency as well. And it, it is what's driving, um, you know, greater crisis from, for, from a humanitarian perspective. If you, if you go back a little bit to 2015, there were about 740 million people in the UN said who lived on less than a dollar ninety a day, so less than two dollars a day in simple money. That was going well. 2018, you were down, you're down about 70 million, which is a lot of people that were taken out of that mm. scale of poverty, and the expectation that another 70 million would go out uh, of, of of that scale of poverty up to 2022. Then we were hit with COVID, with climate change getting worse, and with more conflict in the world. And unfortunately, those numbers have flattened, but they haven't kept going. But we're still working at it, and, 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 and you know, we, we're hopeful that, that we will continue to see progress in that, that regard, and really it is great mm. thanks to the people who support us. We're incredibly lucky in, in this country when we think of uh, the problems people have to face uh, on a daily basis uh, in uh, what, uh, one in eight of the countries in the world. Uh, whether it's famine or, or disease. I mean, something like cholera, that's something uh, that you're working with uh, with people in Haiti at the moment, uh, and that's life-threatening. Yeah, that's correct. Cholera is, a, is, is always a threat of outbreak where, where you get very difficult living circumstances. Haiti, as, as you might know, has been subject to a lot of gang warfare and, and government instability, and basically the services are broken down there. So, so Concern is working to provide health support, nutrition support to people, particularly in the capital there, Port-au-Prince, mm. uh, to na- enable them uh, to get through this period, period of, of trauma. And you see the same in the likes of... Uh, of other places where where there's been massive displacement of people. So at the moment, out of Sudan, mm. people are going into Chad. About 90,000 people have, have arrived following the, the outbreak of hostilities there. They're coming to camps. The camps don't have clean water. They don't have adequate means of people um, providing for the for themselves in, mm. in terms of climate and so on. Yeah, and and natural, natural disasters, uh, the earthquakes in, in Turkey and Syria, I'm sure, uh, added to the challenges you were already uh, experiencing and for people in Syria, uh, not just uh, the earthquakes, but the war. Uh, we think of war in uh, Ukraine, obviously. Undoubtedly, it is uh, one of the worst things uh, that can happen in a country in terms of the well-being of citizens. Uh, but it's not just Ukraine where there's violent conflict. No, it's not. And as you say, Turkey, Syria, um, we were concerned with working there with the Syrian re- re- refugees and the, the, Turkey, the, the Turkey earthquake and Syria earthquake struck um, this year um, in, in, in January, February. And two million people are displaced, lost their homes. Many of them will be Syrian refugees. There are nearly four million Syrian refugees living in Turkey. And we're working in northern Syria as well, in the, in the area that's controlled by, by the Kurdistans and, uh, and some other groups. And again, there's massive uh, displacement of people there, and really profound implications. So I remember meeting some group of uh, young men, they're about 20 um, in Turkey, they were Syrian refugees. They were struggling to sleep because they had been uh, in the earthquake, the building had collapsed around them, and a number of their family and, and, and friends had been killed. And I asked them about their education, and they said their education finished at the age of 10, um, because... 
they were in Syria, the war broke out, education stopped. And that was it in terms of the level of education they had. Louis had no prospects of going further and very, very difficult. And you can see the impact of of, of, of conflict on, on people's real lives and particularly youngsters from an educational perspective. And we see the yeah. same in Niger and other countries. And I think uh, most people understand that. And I think that's probably why people have been so quick to open their doors and indeed their hearts uh, to people fleeing from uh, these uh, terrible corners of uh, the world uh, and looking for some sort of sanctuary and protection in in this country Uh, and indeed supporting the work that you do, as you say, uh, in Concern Worldwide. Uh, That work doesn't come cheap, does it? Uh, But people have been very generous. People have been very, very generous. Um, it, it doesn't come cheap. It, the cost, I suppose, of providing support varies depending on the country. Somewhere like Ukraine is a bit more like Ireland, where the cost of things is more expensive than, let's say, Somalia or, 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 or Kenya. So it varies. But really, at, at, at the end of it all, we're dealing with people, uh, people from, mm. from, from, from around the world. I think the Irish people have a great heart. Um, they understand that people here are in, in, in distress and they, they reach out on that basis to help others in distress around the world. And it's, it's to the credit of this of this country, we are still uh, the most generous country per capita in terms of giving um, to to, to in, in, in international aid for, from the public, and okay. maybe part of it is a legacy back to our famine. But it's tremendous that the heart is there to reach out to the world, mm. given the challenges that exist in Ireland today as well. It's, it's not just a you know there are many challenges in, in the world. Okay, I, I know people will always be happy to support the work that Concern does, and thank you for doing it, and thank you for joining us this morning, David. David Regan uh, is uh, the Concern World Chief Executive. That's our programme for today. Thanks to Maggie McGuire who researched. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling was here for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie